That matter of forgiveness of our debts for which we just prayed, we'll hear more about as we turn to Luke chapter 5. We return this morning to that chapter to pick up where we left off last time at verse 12 of Luke chapter 5. Dr. Luke is continuing to show us uh, Jesus. Piece by piece, bit by bit, we are coming better and better to know this man whose birth was announced by angels. And all along the way, the revelation is demanding an answer from us to the question, what shall we do with this Jesus? Even in the passage we'll read now, the question is asked and answered in a few different ways. Uh, Some that lead to everlasting life, one that leads to eternal death. The only option not left open to us by Dr. Luke Uh, concerning Jesus is indifference. Either Jesus is all that he said he was and therefore demands all your allegiance, all your life, your faith, or he is truly the worst of charlatans and deserves your scorn. Listen as we read and find out. By the way, may I urge you uh, as we go to reading in just a minute, especially you who, like I, have heard these stories from your youth, to uh, listen now with your heart and engage your mind and your imagination. Let these words now take hold of you. Uh, we've seen lepers as uh, flannel graph uh, figures. Now see this leper as the physically uh, disgusting and dying man that he is. Let the man lowered through the roof be seen by your mind's eye, tethered to his bed and lowered into the house as pieces of roofing mud and debris fall down on him and around him until he dangles from ropes before the Lord. Most of all, may our eyes be open to see Jesus. Let's enter into this history first by praying. Father, We ask that you will transport us to that day and that your word will live in us. We are listening, Father, so we pray that you will speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke 5, we'll begin at verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, 
Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes, And the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God And we're filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. When I say the untouchables, many of you will think of Elliot Ness, the uh, federal agent who, with the help of a special team of hand-picked agents, Uh, Handpicked for their incorruptibility, hence nicknamed the Untouchables, fought crime in Chicago in the late 1920s and into the 30s. His autobiographical memoir bears that name, in fact, the Untouchables. But if you had been born in India, Untouchables would mean something entirely different to you. A 2003 National Geographic magazine article highlighted what life is like for members of the lowest caste in the Hindu community. They spend their entire life outside of acceptable society. So ostracized are they, even the most basic protections of the law are denied them. They are considered too impure, too polluted to rank as worthy beings. They're shunned, insulted, banned from temples and higher caste homes, made to eat and drink from separate utensils in public places. And in extreme but not uncommon cases, they are raped, burned, lynched, and gunned down. They're called the untouchables because they're considered physically and ceremonially unclean. They're compelled to do any work that involves physical contact with blood or excrement. 
and other bodily defilements as defined by Hindu law. Untouchables cremate the dead, they clean latrines, they cut umbilical cords, they remove dead animals from the roads, they tan hides, sweep gutters. These jobs and this status of untouchability are passed down for generations. Even the places where untouchables go in India, especially if they end up somehow for some reason in the home, for example, of a higher caste person, are ritually cleansed behind them. Such a person came to Jesus this day in Galilee, or in a city in Galilee. He was a leper. Luke, a physician, and therefore more interested in these sort of details, even than the other gospel writers, expands his description to say he was a man full of leprosy. In other words, this was an advanced case of the disease that, by the way, can refer to a number of different skin ailments. In its extreme, leprosy is a neurological disorder that results in disfigurement of the body. It's been described as living death. Indeed, lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. They were isolated from society and leper colonies. And when they did come and appear in public, they had to cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As they made their way along the street where people would, horrified, clutch their children to themselves and step aside and open a path for the leper to, to pass by. Human contact was absolutely forbidden with a leper. One commentary says that the leper was not just ill, he was outcast. He had not simply lost his health, he had lost his family, his friends, his home, his livelihood. No one would, indeed, no one was allowed to associate with him. He was truly untouchable. If you've ever seen modern pictures on the internet, of people who suffer from one form of leprosy or another, you understand why it really is a horrible, horrible condition and terribly frightening even to look at. All of that makes what happens here in one city in Galilee that day all the more striking. Here comes a man full of leprosy. He's desperately seeking Jesus, and to the disgust and the horror of everyone there, he falls in a pathetic heap in front of Jesus on his face, maybe even his speech slurred from the uh, terrible effects of the leprosy, and begs the Lord, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. After the miracles we've seen already in Luke, in which Jesus has healed by the word of his power, by the power of his mere word, Jesus does something even even better here. Something, Something revolutionary, really. Something that must have elicited 
a collective gasp from the crowd around. Verse 13, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. He touched him. He touched the untouchable, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Instantly, immediately, completely, instantaneously, because this was a genuine miracle. A man disgustingly disfigured by a disease that had ravaged his body is completely transformed and healed and cleansed. No wonder the crowds thronged around Jesus. He had never seen anything like this before. News about him spread far and wide among believers among would-be believers, among non-believers alike. Were were anyone doing things like this today, it would be in the New York Times, it would be in the headlines, every newspaper would be reporting it, it would be on the evening news. People would throng around such a person today for the same reasons. Some noble, uh, most of them less than noble, Jesus had attracted attention all the way from Jerusalem, from which religious leaders were sent, a delegation of them, of Pharisees and teachers of the law, to investigate. You know, can't have false teachers after all, and Jesus hadn't been approved by by the Pharisees. He hadn't been accredited by them, hadn't met their approval, and so they went with critical intent. And what they met with in Jesus that day was more than even they might have anticipated. They were in that crowd that was so thick that day in and around the house, maybe it was Peter's uh, own house, we're not sure exactly, that to four loyal friends who were friends in need and therefore friends indeed could not get their paralyzed friend through the crowd to Jesus on his uh, bed as he was strapped or tied. But where there is a will, there is a way. And at no small difficulty to themselves, they, they managed to get their friend in his bed onto the roof, break somehow through the roofing material, cock the bed just right to get it through that hole and then balanced from ropes and lowered down and maneuvered until it was right in front of Jesus. He sees their faith. But again, the unexpected happens. Instead of saying, you are healed, he says, you're forgiven. Can you imagine how the crowd must have stopped their commotion at that? What, 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 did, what did he just say? Did I hear him right? Yes. He said, man, your sins are forgiven. Really? 
The scribes and Pharisees knew instantly what this was. Blasphemy. They knew immediately what Jesus was saying. The syllogism was plain in their minds in an instant. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus is claiming to forgive sins. Therefore, Jesus is claiming to be God. And that is blasphemy. Unless, of course, it's true. Jesus, who had been given power, the power of the Lord, was with him to heal, was given also to know their thoughts at that moment. Why do you question in your hearts, he says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk? Of course, either one of those things is easy enough to say. Anybody can say, your sins are forgiven or say, rise and walk. It's easy to say these things, but difficult in particular with regard to the forgiveness of sins, difficult to prove because forgiveness of sin is, is not something that's a visible uh, necessarily. It's not a visible phenomenon. It happens in heaven. But to say rise and walk to a paralytic and then to see him do it, now that would be something indeed. Jesus means to prove the truth of the first by demonstrating the reality of the second. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. We've already made the point in a previous sermon that Jesus did not perform miracles simply for the sake of performing miracles. He didn't even perform them primarily for the sake of making sick people better. There was always a greater mission, always a greater purpose, a greater meaning, which was served by the miracles. It isn't very difficult to see the purpose behind these two miracles because Jesus makes it more or less plain. In the case of the paralytic, it is a, um, or rather of the um, a leper, it is a thinly veiled reference to being made clean. In the case of the paralytic, it's front and center. Your sins are forgiven. The miracles, and these two in particular, are deliberately made by Jesus pictures of salvation. This is... Even early in his ministry, Jesus showing not merely by words, but by deeds, what it means to be saved. How one is made right with God. How, how one is granted new life and given salvation, the forgiveness of sins. Which brings me to the first point. My friends, what we need the most, above everything else, our supreme deficit that must be filled, is that of forgiveness. More than anything else in all the world, what you and I need, and every human being needs the most, is to be forgiven. You ask that question on the street. What do you, what do you need the most? And people will give you all sorts of answers. Well, I need money. Uh, I need more money. Uh, I need a better job. I need a better education. I need a better education to get a better job to get more money. 
I need a better girlfriend. I need a bigger house. I need a better environment. We have all sorts of ideas about what we need. When we're sick, we, we need to get better. Now, Jesus knew what people really need, what they truly lack, what they cannot live without. They need, we need to have our sins forgiven. That's what Jesus came to do. And that is the harder thing of the two to say. Rise and walk. That required very little effort on Jesus' part. This was the power of the Lord at work with him and in him. But your sins are forgiven? Now that would require untold, unmeasured effort and sacrifice, not only from Jesus, but from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit. For him to say, your sins are forgiven, required of him that he go to the cross. That he bear those sins and carry them in himself under all of the wrath of God for those sins and suffer every ounce of every one of their punishment. All the suffering of the pit of hell he would have to undergo to say to even one sinner... Your sins are forgiven. And that is just what he did. Not only on the place of one sinner, but of an unnumbered multitude of sinners, including you. You think perhaps that Your greatest need is a little more money or maybe a better set of friends. Even healing from some disease that you're suffering right now. No. No, those are not your needs. Those are not your greatest needs. Your greatest need is to have your sins forgiven and washed away. Money will disappear. Friends will disappoint Even life itself eventually will be demanded from your body. But the rest of eternity follows this life. And what you need, to use the leper's phrase, is to be made clean. You need to have your sins washed away and be made right with God. Which brings me to the second point. You need what you need the most. Forgiveness of your sin. Only one person can give you. And that is Jesus Christ. You've sinned against God. Like David said, remember in the psalm, against you, you only have I sinned. Jesus Christ is the one to give you forgiveness of sin. And that for a couple of reasons. First, because he's God. The Pharisees and the scribes that day in that city in Galilee, they had eyes sharp as a lynx when it came to spotting faults. But they were blind as bats when it came to spotting truth. They were ready. They were waiting with bated breath for Jesus to slip up. But they got more than even they had imagined or bargained for when Jesus said in their presence, your sins are forgiven. That to their minds was the ultimate in blasphemy. That's all they needed. 
They knew what Jesus was saying and what Jesus was claiming for himself. He was saying that he is God. And so he was and is. He is God. He's God the Son. And as such, he's the only one in all of the history of all the world who can give you forgiveness of sin. Only God, the God whom you've offended by your sin, can also take care of your sins, can make provision for them as he did on the cross, and consequently forgive them. And this he was willing, no, not just willing, this he desired to do, was inclined to do, loved to do, was glad to do, was pleased to do for the second reason, because he is compassionate. How marvelous that these same events should be recorded, not only here in Luke, but also in Matthew and Mark. And when you look at them through those Gospels, it's sort of like looking at them through 3D lenses. You know, you get the whole picture and perspective when Mark adds this wonderful touch to the scene and his Gospel record, observing that when Jesus saw the leper, before he reaches out and touches the untouchable, Mark says, he was moved with compassion. Jesus was moved. He saw him. His heart was filled with feeling for him. Compassion. People were horrified and disgusted at the sight of him, and not unreasonably so. And the fact is, if you could see yourself for what you are, if you, like Dorian Gray, could look on a portrait of yourself in your sin, could perceive even a fraction of the monstrosity of your sinful reflection in a spiritual mirror. Those internet pictures of lepers with fingerless and mangled hands and melted faces would seem pretty mild by comparison. You would see yourself for what you are in and of yourself. An untouchable. But Jesus, filled with compassion, reaches out and touches you. Scabrous, filthy, disgusting in your sin, Jesus God the Son, the pure, the holy, the compassionate one with his healing, loving touch takes it all away, leaves you clean. It's like a, one commentary says, it's like a reverse infection, a positive infection that he spreads to you when he invades your uncleanness and leaves you sparkling clean. Here's John Calvin. There is such purity in Christ. He absorbs 
all uncleanness and pollution. He does not contaminate himself by touching the leper, nor does he transgress the law. He stays whole, clears all our dirt away, and pours out his holiness on us. Now, while he could heal the leper by his word alone, he adds the contact of his hand to show his feeling of compassion. No wonder, since he willed to put on our flesh in order that he might cleanse us from all our sins. Here is a thing which we pass over without much impression at idle reading, but must certainly ponder with much awe when we take it properly that the Son of God, so far from abhorring contact with the leper, actually stretched out his hand to touch his uncleanness. Dear flock, he still reaches out his hand to touch our uncleanness. He still restores your soul. He still cures the the deadly and disfiguring disease that you have of sin. What healing do you need? What sin still troubles your conscience? What sorrow still grieves your soul? What makes you anxious and weary and sad? Jesus stands ready to touch all your hurting places and make you whole again. But listen to this. Here's here's the thing. You must come to him. You must come. But you're embarrassed, you say. It's too embarrassing to come to Jesus. You're too proud to come. You're too independent to come. And what will everybody think, you know, if I bow before Jesus? Too much trouble to come, maybe. Too inconvenient for you to come to Jesus right now. Imagine for a moment that that leper had decided earlier that day that you know, facing the stares and the jeers and the, and the outrage even of the people, the scorn of the town folk, it, it was all just too much. Just too much. Too much to brook to come to Jesus. How tragically the rest of his life, may we say the rest of his death, would have gone. He would have died of leprosy and he would have died in his sin. He would have gone from bad to worse. He must hear. He had to come. He had to hear this healing word. Nothing could stop him. He must see Jesus, he must, dare he even imagine such a thing in his wildest dreams, he must feel the touch of Jesus. Unclean, 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 he cries out 
to the crowd because he knows that there's one who can make him clean. <coughs> Imagine if those four friends of the paralytic had decided on the porch of the house so crowded with people that there just was no way. We're not going to get him in. It's just too crowded. Too many people. We can't get to Jesus. Imagine if they, they had not climbed those stairs and dug with their fingernails into that roof until they could see Jesus below. Imagine if they'd halted there because tearing a hole in, it might have been Peter's own roof, uh, we don't know, Peter's house, uh, would earn them ridicule and even hatred of the people inside. Oh, well, they would say to their friend on the pallet, you know, we gave it the old college try. No. Forgiveness? No. Walking? No. Feeling? No. Nothing. But they couldn't and they wouldn't give up. They were determined to encounter Jesus. More specifically, determined that their friend should encounter Jesus and be healed. My friends, find yourself in those four Friends, find yourself in that determined leper and don't give up. See how infinitely important, more important than anything else in all of creation, salvation must be to you until your entire life revolves around this one <coughs> thing that you should be saved. Make it the calling of your life to obtain that salvation for yourself, and not only for yourself, but those whom you love as well. Feel your desperation for cleansing, for healing, for being raised out of your living death, for that's where you are, says Paul. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses until the Savior touch you and remove it all and give you new life in its place. Tell him. Tell him that unless he save you, you cannot be saved. Tell him that, that if you die apart from him, it will not be because you did not press with all your might against the crowds, because you did not climb up on the roof and tear a hole with your bare hands in that roof to get to him. Tell him that it will not be because you were unwilling to be lowered through a hole in a ceiling dangled by ropes of your friends if that's what it took for your sins to be forgiven. Because if you will, if you will pursue him with all of your heart, you will discover what these men learned in that place and what so many others have learned since. That the Lord never, never turns away a single person who comes believingly to him. Never once, not once, in all of his ministry did Jesus ever turn away a single person who came to him with that kind of intrepid faith. Indeed, he said of all such men and women and boys and girls, that you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Amen.